Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It is Thursday, the 9th of September, 2021. The death toll in Louisiana attributed to Hurricane Ida and her aftermath has now risen to 26 as authorities attribute an additional 11 deaths caused by power outages and exposure to extreme heat. People not having any air conditioning um, attributing that to the storm. I want to talk about the attribution, um, the consequences of sin is death. And so when we talk about attributing the death of an individual um, to a particular cause, so when you think about the 4.55 million deaths globally attributed to the coronavirus, I, I absolutely think that in the years to come, that number is going to rise considerably. There will be a considerable number of deaths attributed to COVID and its effects for people who didn't actually have COVID. The same is true for um, the deaths being attributed to Hurricane Ida, deaths attributed to the storm. Had there not been this storm, there would not have been this power outage. Had there not been this power outage, people would have had air conditioning. If they'd had air conditioning, they would not have succumbed um, to death. And so when we talk about attribution, the the way that things are attributed the, to causes, as Christians, one of the things that we absolutely have to get a handle on is that ultimately it's all attributed and attributable to sin. The consequences of sin, the wages of sin, is death, Romans 6.23. But Romans 6.23 also says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we live in a fallen world. We live a really long way from Eden. All creation longs with, uh, groans with eager longing for man's redemption. And we live in a world that is fallen, but we also live in a world that God has and is redeeming. So, yes, we live one breath, one moment, one unpredictable event from the reality of death. But we also live one glorious moment, one breath away from the reality of heaven. If you haven't spent time recently in in the passion narratives of one of the Gospels, let me encourage you to do that. Spend some time today in, I don't know, just pick one, Luke 23. Let's take Luke 23 as a as a really good chapter to spend time in today. Um, in Luke 23, you will, um, it opens with Jesus having been um, on trial. He's been 
he's been questioned by Pilate. Now he, a pilot, has trotted him out, trying to, you know, trying to release him. And the crowds cry, what? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, you know, actually says, I don't find any guilt in him deserving of death. And the people are all the more insistent, crucify him, crucify him. And so um, Pilate turns him over to be crucified. So whose sin nails Jesus to the cross? The sin of Pilate? The the Romans, who are the only ones with the power to crucify and ca- carry out capital punishment? The Jews, who are demanding he be crucified? Or is it our sin that held him there? The consequences of sin is death. And it really was my sin that held him there. And there's a larger reality. If I am in Christ, if I have accepted the good gift of God's grace offered through the atoning sacrifice of his son, the Savior Jesus the Christ, then though my sin held him to the cross, though I die, yet shall I live. And so if today be the day that death comes, always only one breath, one event away, then trust me when I tell you, those of us who are in Christ, we're going to take our next breath in heaven in the fullness of the presence of the living God. So no matter what other news you consume today, let me really encourage you to be consumed by that great and good and glorious news, that death has lost its power. Yes, it is attributable in this life to many, many causes, but it's ultimately attributed to the reality of sin. And sin has lost its power over us, and its penalty has been fully paid. His name is Jesus. He's as good news today as he was on the day that the people called for him to be crucified, and he is the good news every day into eternity. Next up, we've got Ben Johnson. He's a media reporter for The Daily Wire. He and I are going to talk about some headlines of the day. We'll be right back. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Joining us again on this Thursday morning, Ben Johnson. He's a media reporter at The Daily Wire. You can read what he's writing at dailywire.com. All right, Ben, the Tripwire CEO was fired for posting a tweet. All right, what's going on here? Yeah, it's a very strange case. John Gibson uh, was the CEO of Tripwire Interactive, which is a, a video game company. And what had happened was over the weekend, of course, everyone has been talking about the Supreme Court decision on the Texas heartbeat law. Uh, they had said simply that uh, the the law has to go into effect because they can't enjoin it uh, until someone's rights have been uh, called into question. Since it's not enforced by the state, they can't enjoy in the state of Texas, uh, and they they have to wait for the legal battle to play out on procedural issues. Well, John Gibson committed the thought crime of going on to Twitter and writing, proud of U.S. Supreme Court affirming the Texas law banning abortion for babies with a heartbeat. I don't get political often, yet with so many vocal peers on the other side of this issue, I felt it was important to go on the record as a pro-life game developer. Evidently, his colleagues believed he had to choose between those two things, either being pro-life or being a game developer. So uh, on Monday, Labor Day, it was so important that uh, the company, Tripwire Interactive, 
rushed out a press statement saying that he had stepped down <clears throat> as head of uh, Tripwire Interactive. Uh, what had happened in the interim, two companies who partnered with that, uh, with that group, Shipwright Studios and another one, threatened to cut all ties with them. So uh, his, his public stance as CEO of this company in favor of a, a law that's supported by the vast majority of Texans, by the way, uh, and many, many other people, and, and in the most recent Rasmussen poll actually has a plurality of support nationally, cost him his job. He fell victim to the Silicon Valley blacklist. You can call it left-wing McCarthyism, however you want to think of it. Uh, they had to rush out uh, the statement saying that his comments disregarded the values of our whole team, our partners in the broader community. We're deeply sorry and unified in our commitment to take swift action to foster a more positive environment in the gaming community. So this was a morality-based decision. This was a, uh, a church lady kind of decision, but uh, it's, it's a puritanism of the left where anyone who has an impure thought uh, that would tend in the direction of scientific reality of the, the life that begins at conception or anything else has no uh, place within the company. By the way, overnight, he, uh, John Gibson made his own statement. It's, it's a purely class statement. He doesn't have any recriminations. He encourages people to continue to support the company. Uh, it looks like he's hoping to have some kind of a future in the industry, but he does not step back, and he doesn't say that he was wrong in his views. But uh, this, is, this is a case of someone being canceled for something that, first of all, anyone who's conversant with embryology believes that it's wrong to take the life of a, another human being and that Christianity has taught for 2,000 years, that Orthodox Judaism teaches, that uh, it, is, it is simply morally wrong to take the life of uh, a separate human being, according to, in this case, in this case, uh, the Lord God, Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ. I like, uh, I like how he has already changed his uh, Twitter profile, currently full-time philanthropist, continuing to help the poor and the underprivileged of the world, including orphans and widows. So um, he's a full-time philanthropist who had a job at a place called Tripwire Interactive based in Roswell, Georgia, canceled by Silicon Valley, not in Roswell, Georgia. Like there is a um, there's a I think a cultural observation to make that there are CEOs who are celebrated for the ways in which they engage in. Um, the cancel culture today, and there are ways in which other CEOs pay the price, as did John Gibson, when he makes his convictions known. So when we come back, can we talk about corporations taking positions on everything from r religious freedom to gay rights to individual campaign contributions to voting laws to the Texas heartbeat bill and and on and on and on, um, and, and why that seems to be the the wave of um, of our current culture. That sounds really fruitful. All right. Although it was a poorly framed question, that's the conversation Ben Johnson and I are going to have when we come back. Are, are corporate CEOs the new thought police? We'll be right back. All right, returning to our conversation with Ben Johnson, you can find him at dailywire.com. Ben, um, why don't you take a crack at framing the issue that we're going to that we're going to talk about? CEOs taking action in response to all kinds of cultural issues and 
and movements by particular states or movements of Congress on particular um, things happening in the culture. Like, why is it that CEOs seem to now be on the forefront of the cultural push? Well, you're right. For a lot, for a very long part of our history, you had no idea where CEOs stood on issues, uh, you know, with the exception of uh, occasionally Henry Ford or someone who would uh, uh, produce a manifesto about what he thought uh, that was usually lamentable to read in some aspects. Uh, you, you had no idea where CEOs stood on anything, and that was fine. You weren't purchasing the product because it had a political message. Everything hadn't been politicized then. Today, everything has been politicized, in large part because faith has been driven out, and this is the new higher values. People are finding meaning in politics instead of finding meaning in religious life in Jesus Christ. And so when everything is politicized, everyone has to take up sides. Some of this is coming internally, that uh, there are certain CEOs who want to politicize things, want to take an issue. But for the most part, this is coming externally. Uh, There's been poll after poll, which we've discussed on this program in the past, about how um, millennials and younger want companies to take uh, to take a leadership role when it comes to an issue. They want to know where the company stands. They want to hear CEOs speak out. And there have been multiple polls that show that CEOs are actually the most trusted force in the country. Now, when you're competing with Congress and the president and things like that and the media, uh, obviously the CEOs tend to, tend to do a little bit better because at least they deliver. But uh, they, since they're so trusted... They have a platform. Uh, they have social media where they can speak as long as you don't speak the wrong thing. And so they are speaking out on these issues. And they've created this cancel culture where uh, if you if you echo whatever is going on in the cultural chamber at that moment, whether it's Twitter or uh, whether it's the Georgia uh, election integrity law or several years ago, we remember the fight over Indiana's uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act where Mike Pence, quite frankly, caved as governor of Indiana, which is something we should remember in the coming years, uh, that's, that's, this issue was led by companies and CEOs exercising sort of an economic blackmail against states. Uh, and this is they've been in the forefront of leading these challenges, leading these changes, and um, you're going to continue to see these companies speak out. And uh, frankly, I am very proud of John Gibson for saying, he does not back down. He didn't make a, a nasty recrimination, which perhaps uh, might have been warranted under the circumstances. But instead, uh, he's, he's maintained that he is now a philanthropist. He's doing the right thing. Uh, what has caused companies like Coca-Cola and Delta and a couple of others to back down when they've taken steps is that, A, lawmakers in Georgia and other places took concrete steps uh, that would have come against them, but also that they, more importantly, they heard from their customers that you're not reflecting us. This is a complicated view. We buy your products, and we have just uh, as much a thirst for uh, RC Cola or for American Airlines as we do for for you if you continue to push this line. That's been essentially the only thing that's been able to hold these people in check. So it's not as if they're independently waking up and doing this. Um, There is a person out there who is convening them, and if you just follow what um, a guy named Jeffrey Sonnenfeld thinks about things and thinks are of concern, then you can predict what corporate CEOs are going to do because he's actually convening them. Um, And he's doing so as the senior associate dean for executive programs at the Yale School of Management, and he convenes these CEOs. He gets them on the phone. He tells them, hey, there's this Georgia uh, voter uh, bill, SB 202, 
here's why it's bad. Here's what you need to be saying about it. Um, and and here are the other guys who are willing to say that it's bad if you're willing to say that it's bad. So it's not as if um, it's not as if they're hearing from their customers or even their boards of directors that these are positions that they need to take. There's actually a person out there sort of making all of this happen. But it's sort of amazing to realize you're the head of the you're the head of a company, you're the CEO of a company. Uh, you've created a fantastic product in the case of John Gibson. We can remember Brendan Ike from Mozilla, who was forced out because he supported California's marriage protection amendment back in 2008, uh, which passed in the state of California, of course. And uh, you, you end up being forced out. You, you realize that this is a massive amount of peer pressure. Uh, it is concerted cultural change being exerted by the left. And it's something that the right needs to respond to. Uh, the right has always been focused on the courts. We finally got the uh, a majority on the Supreme Court. We focused on an electoral strategy because that's what worked on the other side. Uh, but for the most part, those of us who have been uh, on on the other side of this have simply uh, decided to to take a powder on these issues, and that includes a lot of churches. Uh, for the most part, over the last twenty twenty five years, there's been this concerted movement within the church to say we're not your your father's. Uh, conservative. We're not your father's evangelical church. We're not your father's uh, moral church. Uh, we don't want to have that image. Uh, that image is so bad and toxic. And there was this idea that if we simply got the young people to like us, then we would be able to smuggle in all of the all of the rest of the gospel somehow and everything else that the Bible teaches on morality. It doesn't work that way. And as it turns out, when one when there's a culture war and one side lays down its arms, the other side wins. It's It's surprising how that works. Uh, so that's precisely what has happened over the last 25 years in the church. The church needs to stand up and speak out forthrightly the way that John Gibson did. From this point forward, no apologies, no backward steps. Stand your ground and realize that if the world persecutes you, it persecuted him before he persecuted you, but he has overcome the world. So it's interesting that uh, according to you know, sort of this guy who's called the CEO whisperer. I mean, according to him, Ben, these CEOs are waiting and expecting and wondering why um, organized groups of liberal denominations, like he specifically uh, asks, like, why is the National Council of Churches not leading on these issues? Why are they not the ones stepping forward? Why do the CEOs have to be the ones to step forward? And it did occur to me, he apparently doesn't know that there's like nobody left. In the National Council of Church, there's nobody left in the denominations that constitute the National Council of Churches. Like, there's no there there. So, I all think chiefs part and no of, Indians. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of what's going on culturally is that people are not aware of just how politically engaged organizations like the National Council of Churches were in the day, and how truly empty those organizations are now. They might make public statements, but there's no there there. There's no power there. The power is now in corporate America as America has become more secular. But there's also great power in the individual who is willing to stand up um, for their convictions. And John Gibson is really evidence of the power of the one to take a stand. And so I think, you know, the willingness of those of us who agree with him to take a stand with him um, is important as well. And you're absolutely right about the National Council of Churches. Most of the way that it used its political power over the last 50 years and longer has been lamentable. 
Uh, I mean, they use it on behalf of Cuba, on behalf of uh, Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, uh, in favor of uh, the Nicaraguan communists and communists in Central America. And at this point, the NCC's the largest share of its budget doesn't come from churches, comes from nonprofit institutions that they have received grants from that have nothing to do with religion. So uh, where they have a lot of money, they have a lot of real estate, but all of their followers are either in the evangelical church or they've given up the pretense of religion and simply gone home. Uh, the, the leadership is, is with the CEOs on the cultural left. On uh, the rest of the uh, culture, though, in the grassroots, it's in the evangelical church. Uh, it's it's in uh, places like dailywire.com and, and other places where we are joining together to make this information known so that people can make a concerted, informed, intellectual, and spiritual stand in favor of the values that uh, have been taught for 2,000 years in the Christian church, going back into the Judeo-Christian uh, background for thousands of years. But these, regardless of our, our denominational differences, these are the things that have united us as Christians. These are areas where we're under attack, and these are areas where we can defend the defenseless the way that John Gibson did when he spoke out in favor of the Texas heartbeat law. Amen. All right, Ben, as always, uh, more for you and I to cover than we can get to um, in, in a visit. Uh, and so the other things that we'd plan to talk about today are either just going to have to hold the next week or gonna, we're gonna, you're going to have to write about them at Daily Wire so we can read it. That sounds great. Thank That's you, That's what Ben. I got for you. Yeah. All right. Dailywire.com. That's where you can find Ben Johnson. We got to take a break. We'll be right back. All right. This coming Saturday is 9-11. And in anticipation of the 20th anniversary of the event that really it changed our lives forever, we are talking this week with a number of individuals who experienced 9-11 in profoundly personal ways. So if you missed our conversation yesterday with Leslie Haskin, I encourage you to get the podcast of that conversation at MyFaithRadio.com. Um, really impactful conversation with Leslie yesterday. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with our colleague from KTIS, Keith Stevens, who was just across the river in New Jersey. He's going to share his personal story with us. We're also going to talk tomorrow with Rob Trotman. Um, who was an air traffic controller in the tower. He literally watched the blips disappear. Um, right now, we've got Pastor Mike Flavin with us. He has been a youth pastor at New Providence Presbyterian Church in New Jersey for 30 years. And he's going to share his experience of 9-11 over generations in a community where, frankly, you know, there were some dads who didn't come home from work one day 20 years ago. That's next here on Mornings with Carmen. know what goes on in your team's world? Do you know what they face every day? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. You and I see our kids before school, in between activities, maybe at the dinner table. But there's a lot of time that passes when they're out of our sight. And if mom and dad aren't vigilant about getting to know a teen's world, they'll miss a whole portion of life for that kid. The more you understand about what your teen faces, what he loves and hates about his world, and the circumstances in front of him, the more you'll have a compassionate heart toward him. Your understanding allows space for the relationship to grow. So mom and dad, here's a homework assignment for you. Get to know what's really going on. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
returning on that September day for you in the yard with your wife. I was uh, in my car uh, in northeast Georgia in a little community called Raven Gap. Mike Flavin joins us now. He is a pastor at New Providence Presbyterian Church in New Providence, New Jersey. Mike, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. And where were you on that September morning? Good morning, Carmen. It's uh, it's great to be with you. Um, yeah, you know, we're on all the commuter lines into Manhattan. And I was driving. It was a perfect sunshiny morning. I was driving to church, listening to the radio. And um, I remember at first, I mean, of course, confusion, but I even remember the disc jockey I was listening to was kind of making a joke out of it. Like, you know, because who could believe in it? They didn't know. And by the time I got to church, it was, it was no joke. And I remember walking in and the pervading thought initially and throughout the morning was the whole world changes now you know it was and of course that was true so 20 years ago um you know there was a generation of teenagers there were a generation of kids you had a child um at the time talk talk about give people a little point in time glimpse into your family 20 years ago so that um, we can understand, you know, then the conversation that we're going to have about your engagement with teenagers in your community. Right. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a 40 year youth pastor. And, you know, as the intro, as you mentioned, I've been at this church in youth ministry for 30 years. And, um, and at that time, Amy, my wife and I had two young teens Um, and so, uh, watching what impact that had on them and then the students I work with, uh, immediately that week and, and beyond and all the way up into today, one of the, one of the real memories I have is, you know, how the school handled the emergency of the moment they went into lockdown, um, no information in, no information out really because um, a lot of those kids' fathers were in the World Trade Center, you know, um, and I had left that morning. And and throughout the day, that was true. We kept getting reports, um, you know, this parent was found, this parent's safe. Um, and that night, um, students and, and really families and others instinctively came to the church. Our church is the center of town in the center of a graveyard, 300, almost 300 years old. So we, we are like the center of town and people streamed in there. And then one by one, I watched reunions that night as dads or moms walked in and kids ran down the sanctuary aisle and, and jumped into their arms. And, and, and there were a few that, that didn't come home. As you take us um, to that moment, I'm sure that others are moved like I am because the fact that you're, first of all, the fact that Christ has had a worshiping congregation on that corner um, in New Providence, New Jersey for 300 years is a testimony. The fact that like many churches in the Northeast, 
um, your church sits in the middle of a graveyard in the middle of town and that it is the instinctive place that people go. That is not the world a lot of people live in across the country. And it, it was different, not only on that day, um, but it was different in that week and in that month and in the weeks that followed. People did instinctively turn toward one another and toward the church. Um, Mike, tell tell us about the graffiti boards, um, because this particular event and image is is so rich, and I think that it's so helpful in terms of the way that you engage students in your community, um, and it's a witness and testimony to others. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, one of the one of the interesting things is, is I'm not originally from New Jersey. I've been here 30 years, but I grew up in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, and I know a lot of your stations are in the Midwest. And um, you know, New Jersey is a whole different. <laughs> culture um we we are we, there are more teenagers per square mile right here where i am uh than anywhere in the country and there's the least amount of youth ministry it still is is confusing to me after being here 30 years that said um there is a hunger you know and there is a draw like half my students they don't even consider us their home church or either unchurched or whatever the case may be. And, and yet there's a real hunger uh, for truth and for connection and the rest. So just before, like at the, in the year 2000, so it was about a year before nine 11, um, I decided to just stop doing youth group and we put all our eggs in small group ministry and it just really flourished like students to this day are starving for real connection safe place to be honest to find christ to grow deep in him and at the same time i started the opposite i started a multi-venue entertainment center like i i think carmen you're in nashville and i was always very intrigued by rocket town like i'm mm-hmm. you know, i mean a big fan and and we didn't start that, but kind of. And we had been running it for about a year, and we had gotten up around four or 500 students every time we opened, paying money to get into the church. And we, it was a multi-venue entertainment center. And um, so we were getting ready to open for the season in September, that Friday, the Friday after 9-11. And 9-11 hits. And we were set to open and we didn't know what to do. I was getting phone calls from parents screaming at me. Like, I understand you're going to open up that party for kids. How dare you? And then I was getting other calls from parents going, please, please, please. These kids need, need a diversion and, and to get away from what's happening right now, please open. And so we kind of hit a compromise. We decided to open not knowing if anybody would come. And uh, for the first hour, keep it very subdued, like chill music. And we have, you know, like every church has kind of this sacred room of antique furniture. And we put tubs of sand and candles and matches in there, which was a bit of a risk. And these big graffiti boards, I've always been in youth ministry a fan of graffiti. I think in, in like a controlled setting where kids can pour their heart out 
and other kids can read it. So we put these boards with permanent markers. We prayed. I went to the door, which is in the back of the property, and there's an old fire escape there, and we call it the fire escape. And uh, 650 kids showed up that night. 650. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, we were always getting around four or 500, but they were lined up so far I couldn't see the end of the line. And for the next hour, and our capacity was way less than that. So there was a limit. And then when kids left, we let others in. But by the end of the night, um, it was so powerful. It was just so powerful. And about an hour in, we made an announcement and we just lit the place up and, and had kind of a normal night, but those boards I've saved. And one of the um, families who lost someone in nine 11 for the reception after the memorial service, uh, the family had seen those boards and requested them be put up in the one in the reception of the person we lost. And we brought them out, in the 10th year and uh, we just found them again. They were up in the rafters of our 200 year old sanctuary. So, you know, I had sent them some pictures to you, Carmen, and um, for kids to cry out with their pain and for other students to realize they're not alone in their pain is a powerful thing. We're going to continue our conversation with Pastor Mike Flavin in just a moment. Uh, We're talking about his personal experience of 9-11. We're going to talk about, um, you know, where the community is at now. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Pastor Mike Flavin, he has been um, serving a community of believers in New Providence, New Jersey, at the New Providence Presbyterian Church. You can find them at the corner nj, the corner nj dot com. Um, he's been serving there for more than a generation now, and we're talking with him about the particular events of 9-11 20 years ago now. And then we're going to fast forward to what's going on today. So, Mike, it occurs to me that the teenagers who we just talked about are now community leaders and parents themselves. You have shepherded an entire generation of 9-11 babies who have now already passed through youth ministry uh, in the meantime. Talk with us about sort of 9-11 over time where you live, because I observed yesterday with a guest who was who was in the Twin Towers, you know, and she said, you know, 9-11 is yesterday for me, every single day. It's 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 only just yesterday, every single day. And she talked about the PTSD that she lives with and the struggle. I mean, the very, very real struggle um, over time and even the struggles that she experiences today. Talk with us about your observations, your experiences, things that we should know, because most of us don't live in communities where 9-11 is just yesterday, every day. Yes, and and... You know, um, PTSD is very real. I teach a course in that, and um, things don't just evaporate. Memories linger, and healing happens, but um, the memory is very real there. One of the things I noticed a few years down the road was how many of my students joined the military. I mean, I've always had a few join the military, but it was very striking to me that there was an uptick 
in that. You know, there was an ultra patriotism. I mean, the country came together. You could not buy an American flag in North Jersey, where I was, and maybe other places as well. And, and that was just very noticeable um, to me. Um, I have, my wife and I have two 30-year-olds now, um, but I, I also remember my daughter saying when she was in college, not in the area here, how on 9-11, which is such subdued, intense day for people that are in the greater New York City area and, and around the country and in Washington and, and elsewhere too. But that on her college campus, people just, it was like life as usual. And it will not be life as usual here this Saturday um, in many ways. And so that was somewhat noticeable. Um, but we, you know, it's still, there's still a rawness there. Um, millennials grew up in that uh, with that reflecting that memory. I've also wondered, and I don't have any, I haven't really thought it through, but to me, watching students struggle with that is a bit reminiscent. I don't even know how to say it, but with what students are wrestling with now in this pandemic, you know, uh, fear, death, um, and all that goes with that. You opened Carmen with a great, word about the wages of sin is death, you know, and, and is the world a safe place to be? Am I going to be all right? You know, um, one of the things I've said to my students a lot over time is life is short, life is hard. And then I always throw this in, man, life is good, you know, and when you know Christ, um, life is good. So the struggle with death and darkness and brokenness that was just accentuated on 9-11. And I think to some degree, it sort of is now, you know. I think that's a uh, really interesting corollary to make. Um, we're going to talk in the second half of the next hour with Kara Powell um, about, you know, the the big, the three big questions that every teenager is asking and and how we answer those in the culture today and um, and how so much of that is just being with them, walking with them. Um, as they ask the questions and, you know, and discover the answers. Um, talk with us about, I mean, you describe yourself as a career youth pastor. I got to tell you, that's like a weird, that's a weird <laughs> thought for a lot of people. I mean, you're a weird yeah. guy. I can, I feel comfortable yeah. saying that. Yeah, um, I'm, a freak, I'm a freak, Carmen. I'm a freak. I know, but it's such, but such a good freak. So we have like a minute left for you to tell us like what you know and what you've learned and the hope you experience as a career youth pastor. Like give us a little yeah. hope because we hear such terrible things about the emerging yeah. generations. You know, um, uh, it was God's call in my life. I mean, uh, he made it very clear. I had never been in, I wasn't in a youth group myself. I grew up in Eden Prairie in suburban Minneapolis and nice little church, but I had no youth ministry. And I remember coming, I went to Bethel seminary in St. Paul. And I remember saying to some friends, the one thing I know God's not called me to is youth ministry. And 40 years later, that's all I've known. And I'm grateful for the call. Um, God is up to great things and has been throughout um, the, the code that I finally cracked, which was Jesus, uh, strategy is small groups. Kids, kids don't need to be entertained. Um, they want to be, so I've built my entire ministry here around same gender, 
pretty much same grade, small groups. My ministry is a whole bunch of little youth groups with volunteer youth pastors. That was the key. And, and then with seniors, to put them into ministry, I have this year uh, about a dozen senior interns that they actually get a college scholarship for helping run my ministry. And, and it's been beautiful. I mean, in fact, here's the crazy thing. This senior pastor of our church here who was gonna, who's going to be installed this Sunday was a student in my ministry and oh my a product of so this great. church. So there is hope. There is hope, and there is an outpost of hope and a light shining on a corner in the middle of town in a little place called New Providence, New Jersey. You can find them at the corner NJ thecornernj.com. You're looking for Pastor Mike Flavin, F-L-A-V-I-N. Um, if you want to know more, I feel confident that if you reach out to him, Mike would love to share more with you. Particularly, I mean, I think people are going to be intrigued. You put seniors in high school into ministry leadership positions, and they get a college scholarship for participating. That is uh, a pretty great idea, as are many of the things that you um that you're doing in youth ministry today. So, Mike, thank you for your testimony. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for what's going on on that corner. Give Jeff Lee our um, our love as he's installed this coming Sunday. We love to see flourishing churches across the country, and we love to hear from them. So thank you so much um, for joining us this morning. Thank you, Carmen. And say hi to Kara Powell. She is a hero of mine. So that'll be a great segment. Absolutely. We'll do so. All right. Thank you so much. We got to um, wrap it right there. We're bringing a close to this hour, but then we'll be right back. All right. We uh, we make our plans and then we live in the reality of the often unpredictable realities of life. So in all circumstances, let me remind you, we belong to God and he is good. In all things, in all moments, in all places and spaces, under every circumstance, we belong to God. And we know the secret of being content in the midst of all of it. So walk in peace this day. Walk in the knowledge of the certainty of your salvation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Um, And if you're in a moment of uncertainty, just turn to him. Just turn to him. All right, we have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We're just going to keep declaring it. God is good. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.